Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you, and what a blessing it is to be back here with you all. We, you're never out of our hearts and minds, even though we're, you know, removed from you. We're in uh, kind of um, a, a place that feels so far removed from everything that we knew here, and yet uh, our hearts are with you all so often of the time, when we're thinking about the churches we work with, when we're going through our daily lives, uh, when we see you on Facebook or get an email from you, uh, it, it really encourages us, and we're so glad uh, to be back here with you all, to get to hug you and see you and sort of rekindle our relationships. That's one of the blessings of being a missionary that um, I didn't really expect. Uh, I just didn't anticipate the joy of being able to maintain relationships with people that uh, we've had all of our lives. So there are, there, I have childhood friends and childhood teachers that we now have a renewed relationship with because of the fact that we're missionaries. And so that's a huge blessing, and uh, we're just thankful for that. And so thankful to be here with you all, thankful for this church, and uh, excited to participate in this uh, mission conference. So let's go the wor- to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help during this time, and then we'll begin, okay? Our Father, we're so grateful for who you are, for what a blessing you are in our lives to us in every way. You are uh, the fount of all the blessings that we experience. So the joy that we have, the peace that we have, the relationships that we have, the health that we have, uh, the talents that we have. Um, Father, all of those things come from you. And they come through the person of Jesus Christ who died for us, that we might be forgiven and that we might experience the joy of knowing Him and being in relationship with you. We thank you for the gospel, which is the good news of what He has accomplished on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to you. And Father, as we begin this mission conference, we pray, Father, that you would renew our fascination our wonderment, our delight in the good news of Jesus Christ. May we see Him, may we see the power of the gospel afresh, may we trust anew in it even this morning, and for those who haven't trusted, may they trust in Him, and may the overflow of that trust and that renewed faith in the gospel flow forth from our lives so that we would go to the end of the earth that you might be glorified. How whatever that looks like in each individual's lives this morning, what does it mean to go to the end of the earth for the glory of God? I pray, Father, that you would work that into their lives, that they might live the purpose for which you have created them. Father, they might bring you glory and honor. So, Father, as we turn to your word, open our eyes, open our hearts, and may I get out of the way so that your word speaks clearly to the hearts of your people for your name's sake among the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we moved to Bolivia, uh, I remember walking the streets one day in the city of La Paz and feeling this sense of forgottenness there, forgottenness, that I was forgotten. And that if we stayed there a long period of time, that I would just sort of drift into oblivion. And in fact, I wrote a prayer letter using that word as a play on words, into a Bolivian. And my point was, 
we were becoming more like Bolivians. That was our goal in that first year. But it also sort of uh, hinted at this feeling of forgottenness, of sort of lostness in the world. Uh, Bolivia, after all, is not on anyone's top 100 tourist destinations. Uh, most people don't know where Bolivia is. It's gotten news recently because of chaos that's taking place right now. But by and large, if you had to ask people to pinpoint Bolivia on an empty map, they'd have a difficult time doing it. Most people, when they see us again, even if they've known us for a while, they'll, they'll talk about, how is it in Belize? Or they'll mention some other country. Rarely do they get it right that we're actually in Bolivia it's just a country that's sort of off of everyone's radar. And so I remember feeling that and having this sort of uh, mini panic attack, walking through the streets and thinking, if we stay here for 10, 20, 30 years, however long the Lord gives us there, that I would just sort of fade, into, fade out of the minds of everyone that we've held dear all of our lives. And that's a... That's an ego thing, that's a pride thing, but in all honesty, that's the way I felt in that moment, sort of this anxiety attack of just being in the middle of nowhere. And then we moved to the jungle, further into nowhere, <laughs> further into a place where you know, no one knows at all. Uh, there is, uh, to this day, we've lived in our house for over a year in San Buenaventura, Bolivia, and yet, we still do not know the address to our house. I don't even think there is an address to our house. Uh, they just know that that's where the gringos live, right? I can get on any motorcycle taxi pretty much in the whole area and say, will you take me to my house? And they know that's where we live. Even if I've never met them before, they know where the gringo house is. But we're in the middle of nowhere. And so, feeling even more isolated, even more forgotten... But one of the things that really struck me as we had traveled around to the different villages and communities is that the word that was often repeated to us about how people feel there is that they feel forgotten, olvidados in Spanish. They feel forgotten. As if no one else, even the churches around the world, don't know anything about them, have no, offered no support to them, they've just been left alone. Some 50 years ago, missionaries came to this part of Bolivia, but they didn't come to plant churches or to do what would be considered uh, typical, traditional missionary work. They came to translate Bibles. So uh, we have, and you'll see at our table in the gym, you'll see uh, two Bibles, one that was translated into Aseja, and another one was translated into Chiman. And both of those translations were done by missionaries who came over 50 years ago to do those translations. And almost incidentally, churches were planted, believers were made, just because they were there working on the translation. Then those missionaries, after they, they finished their work, they left, and there are sort of a handful of fledgling churches who are trying to survive. With almost no training very little, very few resources at all. Just struggling over the years to sort, somehow maintain their small churches here and there without almost no support whatsoever. So it started weekly and has gotten even more weak over, over time. And then there are villages throughout the jungle who have never heard the testimony of Christ. They don't know His name. 
They don't know his name. And so they are forgotten people in many ways. So I was considering what, what text do I need to preach on. Uh, I was thinking through a variety of texts in the scriptures, and I eventually landed on the phrase, to the end of the earth. Jeff had talked to me about that as being a theme for the mission conference. And I think it really describes, sort of captures the way our home feels. It feels like the end of the earth. And I think by almost any definition we could give to that phrase, the end of the earth, this place qualifies. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. What does it mean biblically and how can we think about it? I want us to think about the several questions related to this particular phrase. So let's read the verse together. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So I have these questions. Where is the end of the earth? Who is there? When should we go? What do we do when we get there? How do we do it? And why should we even do it at all? So this is what we're going to walk through, exploring what it means when the Bible says, even to the end of the earth. Where is the end of the earth? If you put it in your GPS, where do you go? To the end of the earth. What is that from a biblical standpoint? I mean, consider what we mean when we say to the end of the earth. What destination would you name? Hundreds of years ago, the United States, North America rather, would have been the end of the earth. In many ways, from the perspective of people who had not ever been here before. But now, we consider the end of the earth to be other places. But where is it biblically? It's widely recognized that in Acts, we have an outline in verse 1 through 8. Verse 1 8. We have chapters 1 through 7, which were focused on Jerusalem, right? Then chapters 8 through the, the middle chapters there, 8, 9, 10, focus really on Jeru- Judea and Samaria. And then the remaining chapters, until chapter 28, focus on the end of the earth. And so here in this one verse, we have a geographic outline of the expansion of the gospel in the book of Acts. But there's some question by scholars what Luke actually meant, what Jesus actually meant when he said, to the end of the earth. Some believe Jesus was referring to Rome. After all, the book finishes in Rome. Paul's in prison in Rome. Is the end of the earth Rome? It was the capital of the known world. So in some ways it was a very significant place that the gospel would end there at least in Acts. Others believe that the phrase refers to Ethiopia. Because you have the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story? And so some think that maybe Luke is telling how the gospel arrived to Ethiopia. But the problem with that is that's not the end of the book. And the gospel continues expanding westward, not southward where Ethiopia was. And so it seems like the end of the earth must not be either one of those. The greatest deficiency with both ideas, that it would be Rome or that it would be Ethiopia is the fact that it doesn't really take into account the biblical background of the phrase. Acts 1-8 is parallel to Luke 24, 46-49. Remember, we went through Luke-Acts. That was the last thing I preached here. Luke-Acts is a serial narrative, two volumes. And so Luke ends and Acts picks up right where Luke ends. 
And so we see parallels between the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. So notice Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 49. Jesus said to them, It is written that the Christ should suffer and rise on the third, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You can hear the echoes in this verse of, of chapter 1-8 of Acts. There's a speaking about the power from on high, Remember, that's in Acts where the power will come on high and there'll be witnesses. There's the promise of the Father in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And there's the promise of the Father here. You have the beginning from Jerusalem here in the Jerusalem as the starting point in Acts 1.8. And you have the fact that they are to be witnesses. But notice here that instead of saying beginning from Jerusalem to the end of the earth, it says to all nations. And I think that really captures biblically what to the end of the earth means. It is to all nations. To all the nations. To be witnesses to the end of the earth is to be witnesses to all nations, to all people groups. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, Paul actually cites Isaiah 49.6. Notice this verse. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. There's the phrase, the end of the earth, and notice that it is parallel to the nations. So when we ask, where is the end of the earth? The answer is not Rome or Ethiopia, it is to the nations. Which means that the end of the earth represents really the limits of the earth, the most remotest the, the remotest places of the earth. Rome at the end of Acts is not the end of the earth. It's only a pointer toward the end of the earth. And I don't think the end of the earth really refers to a specific place, the same particular place all the time. Rather, it's a way of expressing to the limits of the earth. To the limits. Which is sort of an ever-expanding concept. You think about it. Ever-expanding to the end of the earth, until all of the earth has heard the gospel testimony. Until all nations have been reached. So often churches use Acts 1-8 to sort of describe their, the geographical expansion of their mission program, right? Jerusalem represents local community work. Judea and Samaria, often in these models, and it's a good model, represents regional work. Maybe work in the state or work in the United States, the country. And then finally, to the end of the earth represents international mission work. And I'm in support of that. There is a, a need for us to do sort of a geographical expansion of our mission program within the church. You need to be involved where you are. Your neighborhood is not an unreached neighborhood. You know how I know that? Because you are there. That's what makes your neighborhood a reached neighborhood. You live there. And you have the gospel. And people have access to the gospel through you. And so you ought to be present in that. You ought to be a witness where you live. And that's part of what this mission conference is about. To encourage you to be all the more active in your witness where you live. God has placed you there. You're not in heaven yet. And the reason you're saved 
and you're not in heaven yet, is so that you might be about fulfilling the mission in your neighborhood, in your community. That's why this church, you ought to be united in this mission. Whatever else goes on in interpersonal relationships or difficulties and trials, what ought to bring you back to unity is the work of Christ in your heart that you might accomplish this goal of taking the gospel to this community for His glory. All the other things sort of become secondary when His glory becomes primary in your heart. And you want to proclaim the gospel in your community. So Jerusalem represents this local mission work for many churches, and rightly so. Judea and Samaria represent more and more expansion to the state or to the country, and then finally to the end of the earth represents international work. But I want you to think about it for a minute. We do think about these geographical areas from our own perspective. So we think about Jerusalem as being our neighborhood, even though... Historically, Jerusalem is very far from our neighborhood, right? And we think about to the end of the earth as being somewhere else besides where we are. It's all relative to us. So believers in Europe, when they think to the end of the earth, their ideas, their concepts of where that is may be very different from where we are when we think to the end of the earth. We sort of define it inside out from our own circumstances. But consider this. For us, North Africa might seem like the end of the earth. A person living in Chattanooga, when they think end of the earth, may think North Africa, may think the jungle, may think of places like that. But from the perspective of the biblical writers, North Africa was actually a whole lot closer than Chattanooga, Tennessee, right? And so when we think about the end of the earth, we need to be careful that we don't sort of limit it to our own perspective, but we think about it as this ever-expanding concept of the, forest, the furthest reaches of the planet that the gospel has not yet reached. The end of the earth is not a, the same place all the time. It is the, the places, it, are, it, it is the places that are left, still remaining, who do not have a gospel testimony. It is the villages in Bolivia that don't have a gospel testimony. That's the end of the earth. It's the places in North Africa that do not yet have a gospel testimony. Those are the places that are the end of the earth. And the work is not done until we've reached all the people groups. So the gospel may reach one remote location, but since it's not only one place, we keep going until all the earth is filled with the glory of God through the proclamation of his gospel. So as I said, I feel like our ministry in many ways is a ministry to the end of the earth. Living and working in the end of the earth. I'll show you a couple of pictures here. This is a picture of us pulling up to, uh, to enter a village. Uh, some of the villages are only accessible by boat. And they're hidden in the jungle. You could be in the boat going down the Beni River where we live. Look over to the side and see only jungle, but there's a village behind the trees. And so they're just hidden back into the jungle, isolated. Some require uh, driving to, others you drive and then you walk, you hike all day. So it just depends upon where they are, but they're, they're difficult to access, access because of geography. And so I think in many ways this 
seems like the end of the earth when you get there. Uh, it's very remote. And then here's a picture of uh, uh, some colleagues and I walking through, uh, walking to a Chimani village. Uh, actually, I think that's a Takana village that we're walking to in that picture, just to sort of show you the paths that sometimes you take to get to these uh, isolated communities. Communities in the jungle are considered by mission experts to be what, w- uh, what would be called Unimax peoples. A Unimax people group is a, is a group, it's the largest group that the gospel can come to without having to encounter obstacles before it moves on. Obstacles, what I mean, maybe language obstacles, geography obstacles, cultural differences. So for example, if you reach one village in the jungle with the gospel, it doesn't easily move to the next village. Why? Because the next village may be miles away and may not be reachable by that other village. It may have a different language. And so for the gospel to reach that other village, it has to be translated into another language. Or the cultures may be so different that there's a barrier, at least, for the people in this one village communicating the gospel in another village. So every village is considered a Unimax people. And the reason for defining it that way is to understand that the work, uh, the work is great. There are many needs there. Each of these villages needs a gospel testimony. You can't plant a large megachurch in the middle and all of them would come to it. Every village needs its own gospel testimony, needs its own church or churches. We know what we know of. We know of at least 170 isolated communities in the jungle where we live. 170 villages. And only a handful have churches. And the few that have churches are churches that are dying and struggling to exist. Some of the churches that we have uh, attended are, the one we attend regularly probably has 20 people on a Sunday morning at best. Another one 45 minutes from where we live probably has 10 people on a Sunday. And they're not growing at all. And the ones that do exist are unhealthy churches. Uh, even in one song that you've sung this morning, you've already heard more gospel than you would hear an entire service there. When I moved there, I made a chart of the sermons that were being preached. I had the text that was being preached, the, the topic, uh, the, verses that were, you know, um, the verses that were alluded to, and then I had a, a column for, is the gospel mentioned? And after 15 church visits, I'd only checked the gospel column one time. The gospel's not proclaimed. The church we left we, in our town where we are, the pastor started by saying, I've written these, he read from First Timothy where it says, I've written these things that you might know how to behave in the household of God. And from that point, he never referred to the Bible again and listed rules for what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to act when you enter the church building. Don't chew gum. Don't put your arm around people. Joy wasn't understanding all of that, and actually during the service, she put her arm around me, and I was like, no. <laughs> get to church, arrive to the building early, talk with people later. That was the extent of the sermon. And that's not because they're, I mean, they are steeped in legalism, but there's a lot of, a lot of that's due to the fact that there's been no training there. There's been no help in seeing that, no realization that the gospel ought to be present in every sermon. 
And so you're blessed to hear that week in and week out. But there are people at the end of the earth who do not hear it regularly. So where is the end of the earth? The end of the earth is in places that still do not have the gospel and they, we have many communities where we live who do not have it. So who is at the end of the earth when you get there? I think we tend to think primarily geographically, Ju- Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth, local, regional, international way. But in di- addition to geography, these words are also pointing us to the recipients of the gospel. Remember, Acts 1.8, when it's talking about these locations, is really an outline of the book, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, end of the earth. So, if you look at the examples of the people who are receiving the gospel in each of these locations, you realize it's almost more about who is receiving the gospel than it is where it is that they're receiving the gospel. So, for example, in the Jerusalem section, chapters 1 through 7, there are many references to Jews, Israel, and Jerusalem. The gospel is coming to the Jews first, right? And so you see this These words Jews, the Jews received it, the whole house of Israel over and over again in that area, in that section of Acts. And when you get to the Samaria section, the emphasis is not primarily on the geography because Samaria is not that far away from Jerusalem. The emphasis is really on who is receiving it, the Samaritans. You remember what a scandal it was for Jesus to talk to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well? And here the gospel is coming to the Samaritans. That's the big deal here. Not just where it's coming, but to whom it's coming. The Samaritans were despised, and now they are received into the kingdom of God. And in that same region, you'll you'll read a story about the Ethiopian eunuch. And the emphasis is not on the fact that he's really from Ethiopia. The emphasis is on the fact that he is a eunuch. In fact, it's mentioned five times, he's a eunuch. He's a eunuch. Why is that important? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 through 7, those people with physical defects, including eunuchs, were excluded from the assembly of God's people. They couldn't come into the assembly when there was worship. So this eunuch would have been previously excluded from the assembly of God's people. But Isaiah 56 looked forward to a time when God was going to no longer exclude them, they were going to be let in, allowed into the assembly of God's people. Notice Isaiah 56.3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. It's a promise that one day the eunuchs would, be, would enter freely into the assembly of God. And in Acts chapter 8, We're reading that. The gospel is coming to a eunuch. And so it's no surprise that the eunuch is reading from what book? When when he is joined by Philip. From Isaiah. He has a particular interest in Isaiah because Isaiah tells of a day when even he will be allowed to enter the assembly of God's people. And then when we get to the end of the earth section of Acts, we read explicitly that the phrase end of the earth refers not only to geographically remote areas, but also, maybe more significantly, to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. A light to the Gentiles. So here, it's the focus on those who had been excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, as Ephesians will say, but now are being brought in 
And there's a struggle in that section of Acts, isn't there, with those Jewish believers accepting the fact that now the kingdom of God is even inclusive of the Gentiles. And so the point is, in Acts 1.8, we're not only talking about the where, we're actually talking more about the who. Who is the gospel arriving to? It's arriving to despise Samaritans and people with physical defects who had been excluded. And even, even to the Gentiles. So the Lord, the Lord is spreading the gospel throughout the world. And there are people who are receiving it as the gospel crosses one boundary after another boundary until it ultimately will reach to the end of the earth. So the question is, again, who is at the end of the earth for us? And the answer to that question is people that in many ways are very different from us. People who speak different languages, who think differently from us, who look very different from us. Yet what they all have in common is that they need salvation from the one and only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In that, we have commonality. We all need a Savior. And so as we think about the mission, we need to think about the who. They are real people who need the Gospel in their language and in their culture. They are different from us in many ways, but they are created in the image of God. And I believe they reflect His glory in unique ways. But like us, they desperately need Jesus as their Savior. So in our ministry to the end of the earth, we, we work among people groups called the Tekana. And it's an indigenous people group, the Tekana. There are 36 Tekana villages where we live. There are Aseha. There are seven Aseha villages. There are Quechua, Araona. And there's another people group called the Chimani. We recently heard that the Chimani, we visited a, a, a Chimani village and we heard that they, they, they think that there are at least 125 other Chimani villages there. So you can see there's over 170 people groups that we know about, villages that we know about, not people groups, villages that need to hear the gospel, need the presence of uh, the gospel in their community. This is a picture of... Um, and a Seha, oh, sorry, a Seha village about 15 minutes from our house. Uh, they speak Seha as their first language. The pastor there speaks some Spanish so he and I can communicate. But when they're talking among themselves, they speak in Seha. Um, when our, our friends have visited them, we have Takana friends that go to this village. They do children's programs, but all the children's programs are in Spanish because they don't know Seha. So um, there's a lot of work to be done here uh, among this people group. Uh, this is a slide of a Tacana community called Buena Vista. Uh, and so there's probably about 35 families in this village. What will happen is many of these villages live, off, live by the river, and they're sort of self-sustaining villages. They fish and they farm for their own, own food. They don't usually go outside the villages too often. And once a village gets so large that the the property, the area and the river they're around can no longer really sustain that many people. They'll break off and then form another village somewhere, removed from this one village. And so it's growing, really. It's not going down in terms of number of villages. It's actually increasing as the, as the villages grow. So we encounter these kinds of people group, very different from us, speak very different from us. And there are other people groups that we've never even heard of. Here's a picture of one. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a... 
very different from us in many ways. I told Emily I was going to slide something in sometime for her, but she'll probably never forgive me for this. But I, I really thought I could pull it off here, you know. But there are people groups I've heard about recently, in all seriousness, uh, in the jungle that I've never even heard the name of before. And so there's a great need for the gospel to come all the way to the ends of the earth. So next question, when should we go to the end of the earth? When should we go? And you may think that's an obvious question like now, right? Every pastor is going to tell you now. But I think it's really important to look at the timing issue. It's actually built into this passage, okay? So we've seen Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth point to geographical expansion of the gospel to all nations. We've also seen that it points to ethnic, cultural, people group expansion. But I want you to see now that there's actually a reference to eras in God's redemptive plan in this verse in Acts 1.8. So note the locations that are given in 1.8 are actually interesting if you think about it. There's a city, Jerusalem, there's two regions, Judea and Samaria, and then there's this sort of nebulous to the end of the earth. So it's not like you have three cities or four cities. City, two regions, and then to the end of the earth. What's the significance of these particular locations? Jesus is giving a mission to the church until he returns. And he mentions these four locations. One, one is sort of, like I said, nebulous at the end, but Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. What's the significance of that? Well, if you look, Acts 1-4, in Acts 1-4, Jesus tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the promise of the Father. Then in verse 6, the disciples ask about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Verse 4, wait in Jerusalem. Verse 6, what about the restoration of the kingdom, Jesus? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, when Jesus gives that, he's actually answering their question. He, he does put aside for the moment the issue of exact timing, but he's not ignoring their question. They ask a question about the restoration of Israel. So my question is, what does Acts 1-8 have to do with the restoration of Israel? Why Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the end of the earth? Well, the answer is, in Jesus' answer, in giving these locations, He's actually alluding to three Old Testament promises about the restoration of Israel. The first promise is that Israel would be gathered from the nations. Jesus is referring to that when He mentions Jerusalem. Notice this in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 21. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. When Israel is restored, a promise of the Father in the Old Testament, when Israel is restored, the Jews who have been scattered throughout the nations will be brought back together again, reunified, regathered. It's a promise in the Old Testament. But I want you to note that in Acts chapter 2, that's precisely what is beginning to happen. Acts chapter 2 verse 5 says this, there, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Jesus is saying in Acts 1.8, You are to be witnesses in Jerusalem. I'm going to begin the restoration of Israel in Jerusalem. And the first promise that belongs to that restoration is the regathering of the Jews from their nations. It's happening in Acts chapter 2. 
at least the inauguration of that is happening. So there are Jews from every nation gathering together for Pentecost. And verses 8 through 11 list Jews and proselytes from various places hearing the mighty works of God in their own languages. There's Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Tamia, Judea, Cappadocia. Why is Luke mentioning all of those locations for us? It is to let us know that God is beginning to fulfill His promise of bringing Israel from the nations and uniting them together. Notice this map. This is a map that shows the various locations that are mentioned in Acts 2. And notice how there are Jews coming from all of these different regions toward Jerusalem. When Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, He's alluding to the promise in Ezekiel 37 that God is going to gather His people from the nations. And the fulfillment of it begins in Acts chapter 2. It's an exciting and powerful thing. God is fulfilling His promise. So the mention of Jerusalem in Acts 1.8 is not only a geographic reference, it also points to God's promise to regather Jews from the nations under one king. King Jesus. There's a second promise that Jesus refers to when he says Judea and Samaria. The prophets also pointed to the reconstitution of and reunification of the southern and northern kingdoms under a Davidic king. We see the beginning of this occurring in Judea and Samaria in the book of Acts. Remember, Israel was divided into a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom under Solomon's son. Remember that? Split. The bottom kingdom, the southern kingdom, was in the region of Judea. The northern kingdom was in the region of Samaria. So when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, he's alluding to this reunification that's going to take place. Notice the next verse in Ezekiel 37. I will make them one nation in the land, one nation on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. And what do we see happening in the book of Acts? Well, in Acts chapter 2-7, through we see the people of Judea coming under King Jesus. He is risen and ascended. He is the king, and they're coming under His authority as they trust in the gospel. And then in chapter 8 in Samaria, we see people from the northern kingdom area also trusting in this same King Jesus. People from the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom are being reunited under the one King Jesus. So when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, He's alluding to this promise that God would reunite the people of Israel and reunite the kingdoms themselves under one King. Thirdly, Jesus is referring to the inclusion of the Gentiles Notice this promise which we've already referred to, Isaiah 49.6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The end of the earth section of Acts is really the beginning of God's fulfilling His promise to make His servant, Jesus, a light for the nations. So when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, He's alluding to a promise that God will regather His people. When He says Judea and Samaria, He's alluding to a promise that God will reunite the kingdoms that were once divided under one king. And when He says to the end of the earth, He's saying, my servant will be a servant, a light to the nations. The Gentiles are included in God's restoration program. 
So Acts 1.8 certainly refers to geographical expansion. It certainly refers to ethnic expansion, but it's also referring to the fulfillment of God's salvation promises to restore the kingdom of Israel. So what's the point in all of this? The point of all of that is this. In terms of redemptive history, in terms of God's plan, the end of the earth part, that's now. There's a time element here. There's an era in God's history, and we are in the era of to the end of the earth. Because the Jerusalem promise took place in Jerusalem. The Judea and Samaria promise took place during the book of Acts. But what is still left to be accomplished is that the gospel would be taken to the end of the earth. Which means that everyone who is a believer right now, you are in the era in which you are to be witnesses to the end of the earth. Everyone. All believers. So, so don't, don't, don't step back at this point and say, I'm only responsible for my Jerusalem. We'll talk more about that in a minute. You're responsible in some way of being a witness to the end of the earth. That's the now of this promise in Acts chapter 1-8. We are all all of us, every single person in this room, to be preoccupied with this mandate embedded in this promise that we will be witnesses to the end of the earth. So you need to ask yourself a question this morning. How, how am I doing that? How am I involved in what my responsibility is during this redemptive era to take the gospel to the end of the earth? It's important to think about geographic expansion. It's important to think about the who, but we also need to think about the when, and the when is now. We feel this in maybe an even, even more specific sense of now in our work in Bolivia. We work primarily with two couples. This is a Tacana couple, Carlos and Susana. Uh, they've worked essentially by themselves for the last 18 years, and now we've joined them. Thanks to them, we can actually enter in some of these villages. It's illegal in Bolivia to go into a village without an invitation. The law is trying to protect the indigenous people groups from any outside influence. And we have to get permission to enter. And if we tried that as gringos from North America, we, we would, would not very likely find much success. But when we go with this couple, we can get into almost any village in the, the whole jungle area they can get us in because they've been working there for the last 18 years. The issue is they're both in their 60s now and Susana has bad knees. So this, the day of being able to walk all day in the jungle to arrive at a distant remote village, those days are quickly passing. And they're our key to get in these villages. And so we feel the sense of urgency right now to, humanly speaking, take advantage of what's there for us, that we enter as many of the villages that are unreached as we can, that we take the gospel to them, that we get introduced to them so that we can return when maybe even Carlos and Susana can't return any longer. This is another couple that lives in their house and also works with us, Benjamin and Salome. Um, and so I w want you to know them some. I want to connect you with them. I wish you had a personal relationship with them. Uh, you should be jealous that we do and you don't. <laughs> the good news is one day you will get to meet them too. And we'll rejoice together. They are wonderful, beautiful believers in Christ who have persevered.
through their lives in this place that is at the end of the earth without any support, any help whatsoever, they have continued to do it. Praise God for them and we thank God for them, but feel that sense of now for us. Feel that sense of now for stories like that around the world where now is the time to take the gospel to the end of the earth. So what do we do at the end of the earth? Jesus tells us, and it's really helpful to compare these two verses that we looked at earlier. Jesus promises that we'll be witnesses. But the parallel statement in Luke 24 explains what it means to be witnesses. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And the next verse says... And you are witnesses of these things. What are these things? These things are the Christ suffered on the third day He rose from the dead and repentance for the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed. That's what we're witnesses of. It is the gospel that we ultimately... That's what we're ultimately about. Taking the gospel to the end of the earth. Proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Something happened 2,000 years ago which is remarkable. Beyond your wildest imagination, this is remarkable. There was eternally the Son of God in divine communion with His Father. And along the way, in our own way of thinking about time, God created this planet on which we live. And He created innocent people and placed them in a garden. But they sinned against His powerful, creation-producing Word. And the consequences for all people who would come from them, whether they're Takana, or Aseha, or Chimani, or American, North American, the consequences are incredibly difficult. When you sin against the eternal, creative power of the Word of God, The consequences are eternal. That you will live eternally condemned by His holy justice and wrath. But 2,000 years ago, His Son, who had all the same divine attributes as the Father, set the use of those attributes aside. Can you imagine? And He came to the planet that He had created as a baby. And he grew up and he obeyed every word from the Father. He was completely spotless in every single way. But, wicked men nailed him to a cross and crucified him. They killed him, not because he had done anything wrong, but because he was fulfilling the Father's plan To offer a means of forgiveness to those who are eternally condemned. And then, wonder of wonders, He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. He was in the tomb and He rose from the dead. He has life. He defeated death. No one had ever done that before. And no one ever does it again without His work in their lives. And now, when we proclaim this and people believe it, they actually come out from under eternal condemnation and they can live forever with God the Father even though they have been wicked and unrighteous and undeserving in 
every single way. They have zero righteousness of their own. But God in His amazing grace gifts them 100% righteousness so that they stand before the Father and are no longer condemned. That happened. And we celebrate it and sing it and we still don't rejoice enough in it. But there are people around the world at the end of the earth who still don't know it happened. They don't know it happened. There's a song Joy and I sung at a church a couple weeks ago. We sung it here, The Unfinished Task. And in that song it said, without anyone to hear their cry, they pass hundreds, thousands, pass into the night. There are people who are born, who live their whole lives, who die, and they never know that there is a, the Son of God who has come to save them and offer forgiveness of sins to them. We are here. You are alive. You're at this church for this time that we might take the good news, amazingly good news, that this has occurred in history and can apply to them. That if they will believe in this message, they can have eternal life. We are witnesses to this wonderful news. So what do we do practically there to convey, proclaim this news? This is a Chimani village that has no electricity. Uh, three guys from, uh, two, two men and a woman from Grace Church here in Ringgold came to visit us. And they helped to pay for a generator. We bought a generator and they brought a projector with them and they brought the Jesus film in the Chimon language. Now if you watch the Jesus film in English, every actor has their own voice. But if you watch it in a language like Chimon, there's one guy who tells the story why everybody's acting everything out. They don't have enough Chimon speakers to, to handle it. So we put the projector in, put the, started the generator. They go to the village, and when there's something going on in the whole village, they have a sheet of metal at the front, and they bang the sheet of metal so that everybody in the village can hear it. So they bang the sheet of metal, and people started coming out from their bamboo huts and walking toward us, walking to where we had the Jesus film, sat in front of us on benches or on the ground, from babies up to an 84, 86-year-old man that I met there. They all sat for two and a half hours, glued to this Jesus film, watching the film, hearing it in their language for the very first time. After which we presented the gospel through a Chimon translator, and 26 people made a profession and faith, Jesus Christ, in that community of 200 people. That's an amazing privilege to be witnesses to, his, to the end of the earth. This is what we're about. We want to do that all the more. So one of the things is take the gospel, evangelize. This is actually the 84, 86-year-old man to my left. Uh, and the man to my right actually walked 25 kilometers from another Chiman, Chimani village to be a part of the service I preached in that morning. Because there's no gospel testimony and heard that we were there. 25 kilometers that morning, and I'm giving them Bibles and tracts in Chimon. This is uh, our local church. It's Pastor, uh, Pastor Daniel and Milka and their family of three kids. Uh, one of the things we also do there, evangelization of villages, but also uh, discipling pastors. As I told you, there are weak churches there with pastors who do not have training. So part of our role here is to train our 
our plan in the coming years to hold three pastor workshops, uh, three week-long pastor workshops spread out throughout the year, and to bring the pastors in because we can't get to all of them quickly enough. You know, they're too far removed, so bring them all to one place and have three workshops. This is Joy outside of our house. These two young boys would come to our house almost every day and ask me to cut coconuts for them. We have coconut trees, and they like to eat the coconuts, so I would... Uh, cut the coconuts for them, but G- Joy is actually uh, teaching them to memorize a Bible verse while they're there uh, waiting on the coconuts, I guess. Uh, this is uh, Daniela and Barut. Many of you, if you follow our prayer letters or uh, us on Facebook, you've heard about Daniela who has hydrocephalus, and uh, we worked for a while to get her a valve. It's a huge ordeal to actually get a valve to Bolivia. Um, she continue praying for her. Just a real quick update on her. She, she appar- apparently is allergic to the valves. So every time they put a valve in, it, she form- the, her body forms a cyst around the valve and it no longer drains the fluid anymore. She's stuck in La Paz right now because uh, Bolivia's on the verge of civil war, which I'll talk a little bit more about tonight. Um, I, th- I would estimate she and her mom have been in the hospital in La Paz at least six months this year. Uh, there's no bed for her mom or anything. She just, her mom just lies underneath her bed in this big room full of children that all have great needs. So uh, I'm not sure. Uh, we're, we're concerned about Daniela, how that's going to turn out. But in the meantime, you know, um, her dad, had when she first had symptoms of hydrocephalus, her dad took her to a witch doctor in one of the villages. And, um, you know, he started performing all these spells trying to remove the witchcraft and everything else. And so now that we've been helping him, th- their family, um, he's made a profession of faith in the Lord. And so we're thankful for that. And I told him, I sat and told him, I can't promise him. You know, we always want to say, it's going to be better tomorrow, but sometimes it's not true. Tomorrow may be worse than today, you know, in, uh, in human terms. And so I don't know how it's going to turn out for Daniela, but I j- just told him, you know, the the good news is regardless of what God decides for your daughter in this life, she knows the Lord, and you know the Lord, and because of what's taken place through this difficulty, you came to know him, and you live forever with your daughter, and this will all be forgotten in the past, and so you must, you've got to trust the Father in this time and realize he has your good at heart, and apart from this crisis in your life, you might not have known him and might have enjoyed a few more years with your daughter, but then spent eternity separated from her. And so um, just helping people with their medical needs and all kinds of needs in this very poor area. This is the girls, in, these, here's a picture of the girls in Caleb at the local church, teaching verses, songs, things like that. The kids are super involved at the church. It's an answer to prayer. Um, the Lord has just shown mercy to our kids. They have good relationships there. And I would say they're I've said this at all, every church. I think it's true. I think in many ways they have more of a ministry in Bolivia than Joy and I do, uh, just because they're so involved all the time. Uh, Emily's had an opportunity to lead some kids to the Lord in the plaza, and so uh, they're always talking to their friends about the Lord, and so just uh, answer to prayer to take two teenage daughters to a foreign country, then move them from the city to the jungle, and then for them to be involved in the Lord's work and still faithful to Him, that's grace. Amazing grace to our family. Um, this is us playing volleyball. We, this is on the church property. Every afternoon, I think every afternoon, we play vo- volleyball with people from the community, young people from the community who come. They're not, they don't attend the church. 
but it gives us a great opportunity to get to know them and then to preach the gospel to them. Uh, two young guys, I, I don't know, 18, 19, 20, the girls could tell you, after one of these volleyball sessions asked me to go work out with them in the plaza, which meant basically go to these bars in the plaza and do pull-ups and that kind of thing. And so I walked with them, and they, they asked me their story, my story, like why are we here, that kind of thing. I told them my testimony told them the gospel, why we're even moved from somewhere like the States to middle of nowhere. And after I shared my story, they said, well, the way this works here is when you share your story, we want to share you our most intimate story too. And they told me their story of growing up without dads and you know, their life and all of that. And so it was an opportunity for evangelism, really, because we just play volleyball with them in the afternoon. So it's another, another opportunity for proclaiming the gospel. How can we be his witnesses? I won't take much longer on the rest of these. How much longer, how can we be his witnesses? What you realize when you study the book of Acts is that um, the responsibility of being a witness is not an easy one. Um, in, the, in the States, the level of persecution has reached is, is insult. Believers are insulted. That's, a, that's persecution in the States. They're insulted for their faith. Other places in the world, it's more difficult. But when we read through Acts, we realize... Um, in, in, in all of their experiences of proclaiming the gospel, there's resistance to the gospel. You have uh, chapter, chapter 2, where uh, the, the crowd speaks. Um, after, after they speak in chapter 2, then in chapter 4, the religious leadership is, is upset with them. They're arrested and brought before the council. Chapter 5, high priest questions them but beats them. Chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. And guess where all of that happens? It actually happens in Jerusalem. So think about it. A lot of times in this geographical model of missions, we say, God has called me to be a witness in my Jerusalem. And usually what we mean is where we live. But biblically speaking, Jerusalem was not actually their hometown. Remember, they're speaking, they have a Galilean accent because they're from Galilee. Peter is recognized before Jesus is crucified with an accent because he doesn't belong in Jerusalem. And they all recognize their accent. Jerusalem is not their hometown. And Jerusalem, far from being their safe, comfortable home, is actually the most dangerous place on the planet for them. Think about it. The one that they followed had just been crucified there 40 days earlier. And they can easily be identified as his follower. And Jesus says, stay here. Stay here and wait in Jerusalem. So we need to think about that. When we say, God's called me to be in Jerusalem, be careful what you're actually saying. It may not mean God has called me to stay in my comfortable area and preach the gospel as convenient. It may mean... God has actually called you to risk, humanly speaking, to sacrifice, to live uncomfortably, to live with the insult, to proclaim in such a way that people hate you because of what you proclaim, not because of how you act, but because of what you proclaim. God may very well be calling you to something besides safe and comfortable. And how are you going to do that? And the answer is in this verse... We've already read Acts 1.8. Wait until the Spirit has come. Power from on high. It is the Holy Spirit of God. So as you read through Acts, when they speak with boldness in the face of persecution, when Stephen looks up 
at the heavens before he's going to be stoned. When there are trials and where they need direction, it is the Holy Spirit of God that empowers them to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. How do we do it? We do it as we depend upon the Holy Spirit, trusting in the promises of God. Let's end here. Why? Why are we to be witnesses to the ends of the earth? Why would we invest and risk and suffer to be His witnesses to the end of the earth? And there's several answers. One is simply is that our Lord commanded us to. Acts chapter 1, where that verse is taking place, it says, Jesus went up to the heavens, up to the sky. They watched Him go up. What's all the business about Him going up? It is because He is the King. He is ascending to His throne. And before He ascended to His throne, He said, You are to be My witnesses. And before that, He said, Make disciples of all the nations. So a simple answer as to why we are to do, go to the ends of the earth is He told us to. The Lord who has authority in all heaven and earth told us to be witnesses to the end of the earth. And when He says in Matthew 28, Make disciples, we sometimes stop there. Make disciples. We're all to be making disciples. But finish the verse. Make disciples of all nations. It's not obeyed until it's out there going to the nations. It's not enough to say I make disciples where I live. We must be make disciples to the end of the earth, to all the nations. And you may say, and we hear this a lot as missionaries, but what about the need here around me? And I would say with everything in my being, be about proclaiming the gospel where you are. Some say, why would you go there when you could just stay here and do work? And the answer is, Jesus told His disciples to go there. To make disciples of all the nations. If everyone believed that they should just stay put, you would have never received the gospel. You never would have received it. You wouldn't be sitting here in church listening to a sermon. But someone heard the promise of Jesus, heard His mandate and said, I've got to go and risk. And now you have the gospel and now it's our privilege and responsibility to send and go to the end of the earth. So that's a reason. He is the risen Lord. So we do what He says. Another reason that we are to be witnesses to the end of the earth is this, this bare fact. Here's a fact for you. A truth an absolute truth for every person on the planet. He is the only means of salvation that there is. There aren't any other options. For Takana or Seha, a Chimani or North American, to your neighbor, there are no other options. He is the only one who can save. He's the only one who has that power. Acts 4 says this explicitly, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven. Under heaven there's no other name given among men by which we may be saved. And there are people in communities where we live who are born, live their lives, and die without hearing that name. And we have to change that. And the final reason I leave you with, and, maybe, and I think the most significant reason for all of us, is that He is worthy. He is worthy. He's worthy. Notice Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And now I read that verse and I think from Tikana villages and Chimani villages, from Aseha villages and Araona villages and Quechua villages, 
North American suburbs, every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages are standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the nations, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And the response of reading that verse ought to say, we ought to all say, to the question, why would we go to the end of the earth? The answer is, He is worthy of the worship of all peoples. It's not enough. It's not enough for Him to be worshipped by North American people. It's not enough that He be worshipped by all of Europe or Asia. It's not enough. Because He is more worthy than that. He's worthy of the worship from Every single tribe, be it small or large, every nation, every tongue. He's worthy of it all. And I think there's something unique and amazing about this picture. That every voice must be heard in worship to our great God and Savior. He's worthy of the worship from the Takana, from the Aseha, and from others. He's worthy of it all. And So the final question, final question, statement I want to make relative to this phrase to the end of the earth is I want you to think about it how we even use it in English this is love songs are made of this right we say I would go to the end of the earth for you you've heard that right go to the end of the earth for you and I would say are you willing this morning to go to the end of the earth for the name of Christ among the nations I don't know what that looks like but when we say it, we don't just mean physically going to the end of the earth. Like, you know, I'd walk a thousand miles to be with you. What we're really saying is, there's no limit to what I would do that your name might be proclaimed among the nations. I would go to the end of the earth. And so what is that for you this morning? Every person, I want everyone to consider that in this moment. What does it mean for you to go to the end of the earth for the worthy name of Jesus Christ among the nations. And everyone in this room has to answer that question before their God and King, Jesus Christ. And it is a privilege and joy to serve Him in this, to declare His worthiness, His glory among the nations. May we be about it, Poplar Springs. Let's pray. Father, we... We sing songs about how much we love you, but as we sing them, we even recognize that sometimes our minds drift off. Sometimes we sing words like, I surrender all, and yet we know we're not really willing to surrender all. And so those songs for us become really petitions to you to say, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Make us witnesses to the end of the earth. Make us willing where we're not willing. Uncover the things in our lives that we say, I want to protect myself from this. I want to keep this. I don't want to give this up. I'm afraid. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. Whatever it is that's hindering us, Father, I pray that you would remove it from our hearts so that, and replace it with a boldness and a passion 
and a vision of Jesus Christ that impels us, that pushes us forward all the way to the end of the earth for the sake of Your name. And I pray that You would speak to each person this morning that they reflect on this wonderful, beautiful Gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, that everything in them would say, from now on, it's not my job so that I might have a career. It's my job for the mission. It's not my house so that I might have a pretty house and everyone looks at it. It's my house for the mission. It's not my children for the sake of them being looked upon in a good way by others. It's my children for the sake of the mission. It's not my life for the sake of the comforts and pleasures I can get from this world. It is my life for the sake of the nations. For the sake of the name of Jesus to the end of the earth. May it be so by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives for the all-deserved glory of Jesus Christ among the nations so that one day we will not be ashamed to stand before the throne with brothers and sisters who look very different from us, proclaiming in our own unique ways blessing and honor and dominion to Him, the One who has delivered us and saved us. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.